The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Every eye is on Jesus as he reads the words from the prophet Isaiah, words of hope, words of justice. When Jesus speaks these dear words from the Jewish scriptures, nothing could hit deeper. This is exactly what his listeners have hoped for, for hundreds of years. And nothing seems farther from where they are today. The Jews were marginalized, oppressed by Roman rule, many of their leaders crucified for holding to their faith. They were the one lump the Roman Empire couldn't digest, and they suffered for it. They longed for God's deliverance, for the promised Messiah. Almost no one breathes. They can't look away. They know this man. They've seen him grow up from a child playing in the streets. But something is different about how he reads the familiar words, the words that have been a prayer on their lips. Jesus rolls up the scroll and sits down. He speaks with quiet conviction. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine what people must have thought. How could the small town kid make such an audacious claim to have fulfilled this ancient promise? Jesus doesn't say he's just going to teach about justice, dispute the finer points of the law. Neither does he, like the zealots of the day, propose a violent rebellion. No, he says that he himself is the answer. Who has he come for? The poor the captives, the blind, the oppressed. God hasn't forgotten you, he says. I am his answer. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 2,000 years later, we still have the poor. We still have those who are captive, blind, and oppressed. We might even identify ourselves with one or more of these categories. Whatever we might want to believe about the inherent goodness of humanity, by observation, it seems that the untended garden of human growth quickly produces weeds. Corporations take advantage of poor farmers. Governments run on lies and bribes. Even in families, which should be the most nurturing place, conflict and abuse flourish. Now, just as when the students go out to weed in our garden, People don't always know what a weed is. They have different ideas about it. So people take sides and accuse the others of being destructive to society. <laughs> well, they themselves remain innocent. <coughs> Some people have been labeled social justice warriors, fighting passionately for the causes they support. Others agreeing with the cause, but with perhaps little time and less passion, push the like button on social justice posts, done it, or donate bits of money online to all sorts of causes. This has coined terms like slacktivism or clicktivism. Some care even less, not very bothered by causes that don't directly affect them. Some just don't like conflict and avoid it at all costs, a very Canadian position. 
Still, others feel passionately that Christians should stay out of such public politicized battles. As I've considered these different postures toward evil in the world, I've wondered, how would Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? So I wanted to give this lecture for a couple reasons. First, I wanted to open myself to be challenged by how Jesus responded to injustice in his time on the earth. I have to confess up front that I'm really not that much of an activist myself. When I was growing up, we didn't discuss politics, mostly. <laughs> um, I've pretty much avoided them as an adult until the last American election said, made you luck. <laughs> I'd rather write a poem than protest. I'd rather read a book than get read the riot act. Conflict makes me very uncomfortable. As I've been rereading the Gospels, I realized again how uncomfortable Jesus makes me. <laughs> All too often I assume I know what Jesus is saying, and I usually end up watering down his message so I can feel better about myself. I can sound like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Surely God didn't mean that. I read one article that examined how Jesus' magic tricks and other crowd-winning techniques could be co-opted by activists today. I started reading a book about Jesus as a rebel, then realized he's portrayed as a rebel, but not as God. Others recognize Jesus as God, but want a pocket God, their own personal Jesus, in the words of Depeche Mode. There are countless interpretations of Jesus. Such a, such a powerful and divisive figure is one we want to have on our side. So it's easy to twist him into something that fits our mold. It's easier to shape Jesus into our image than be conformed to his. The Catholic writer Andrew Greeley writes, once Jesus comforts your agenda, he's not Jesus anymore. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks each one of us. Jesus states his own mission in the words he reads from Isaiah. He's not here just to talk, he's here to act. But what will he do? Everyone in that synagogue must have wondered that. What will happen next? So in this lecture, I'm going to reflect on a few stories from Jesus' life. It was very hard to choose. There are so many examples, so many on this topic. It's huge. But as much as I like you, I do want you to leave eventually. <laughs> so we'll just look at some examples of how Jesus dealt with issues of injustice in his day. And for each story, I'll give a reflection on how what Jesus demonstrates can be applied to how we interact with social reform today. And I'm not an expert, but I'm very interested to talk about it with you. So most of my PowerPoint just consists of pictures with a title because that's about all I had time to do. Um, so the first one is start with your own heart. The woman caught in adultery. I put up this Korean Jesus picture for the, well, now there's only one Korean present. There was going to be <laughs> Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. When Jesus stood in that circle of men who were using a vulnerable woman to test Jesus, he knew what they were up to. Was he unconcerned with this woman's sin? Well, clearly not, since he tells her to go and sin no more. But his approach to sin wasn't condemnation. He challenged those men to look at where their hearts were before they tried to enact justice. Tellingly, it was the older men who walked away first. Maybe they learned over the years just what they were capable of. It isn't enough to, act in, uh, to tackle evil and injustice in the external wor- world if we don't first recognize that we are capable of great evil ourselves. I recently read a news article about a young man who was one of my coworkers years ago. He had been convicted of some terrible things, deep injustices toward vulnerable people. I felt anger and shock over what he had done, as well as sadness that he'd probably been living with the weight of deep shame. But I also realized that in my own heart, there are things that I say, no one can ever know about this. There are things that attract me that I'd be ashamed to admit standing here. There are sins in my heart and injustices in the world that I turn a blind eye to simply because I'm not bothered. It doesn't bother me. It must not bother Jesus, right? I'm going to steal a quote David used in his lecture on video games a couple weeks ago because it's so apt. Solzhenitsyn writes, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, but not quite the way we expect. He also came crying out, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We tend to say, okay, I do some bad things, but I would never do that. I would never act like one of them. But God doesn't compare us to each other. He judges our holiness in comparison to himself. Jesus never ignored that not only systems have to be changed, but also the human heart. His holiness demands it. The scripture that was fulfilled was not just God's freedom for the captive and justice for the poor. Some forms of theology have emphasized Jesus as freedom from unjust social structures while forgetting that Jesus also came to free us from the power of sin. Sin leads to the death of the whole person, not just the body. The poor are no less in need of deliverance from sin than the rich. Both the Pharisees and the woman caught in adultery needed freedom from sin. The woman wasn't only a victim of the patriarchy, she was also a victim of her own sin. It usually takes a long time to change hearts. I well remember a conversation I had with a very thoughtful friend. He said that an act of violence has so much more power than an act of goodness or love, so violence is the best method to enact change in this world. I spent a long time thinking about it, and it seemed true. 
You can't drop a bomb that makes people love each other or a rainforest grow. I thought about major mo moments of positive change in history, those movements that changed the world forever. Some of them happened rapidly, but most had the slow work of many, many dedicated people behind them. The work of love is slow because it involves not just changing systems, but changing hearts. If we simply work for freedom without addressing the condition of our hearts, we don't have the character to use freedom well when it arrives. If we know that we're capable of the same evils as those we oppose, we're starting from the right place. We need to repent of our own sins and believe the gospel. Our desire to extend grace to those around us flows out of knowing the grace we've received. Oh, that's the order I headed in here. <laughs> well, yeah, let's start there. When John baptizes Jesus, the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. God's voice literally comes from heaven and declares Jesus to be his beloved son with whom he is pleased. This seems like the perfect beginning to Jesus's campaign. <coughs> Capitalize on this, pose for some selfies with John. What bigger endorsement could you ask for? It sounds like just the right time for some public appearances to boost his status. Instead, Jesus retreats to the wilderness to be alone. It seems eccentric, foolish, inexplicable. God has just declared who Jesus is. Now Jesus' own faithfulness to that identity is going to be tested. Do his actions match up with what God says of him? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness sets the scene for how Jesus would respond to the lure of power. There Satan offered him the shortcut route to glory. Will you turn these stones into bread? Will you test God's protection of you? Will you bow before me to gain power for yourself? Will you take a shortcut to meet human needs and gain success? Many people around Jesus had exactly the same kind of agenda. Surely the end, the means justify the end. I always get that mixed up. <laughs> let's fast track this. We've waited so many years, and here you are. Let's get the show on the road. Milton wrote Satan's taunt in Paradise Lost. Why move thy feet so slow to what is best? In the wilderness, Jesus is mocked by the one who for thousands of years has brought death and destruction to those Jesus came to save. Jesus could have given into temptation and seized power, or he could easily have knocked Satan out of the park, but instead he resists with the word of God. In the Lord of the Rings, the one ring is a litmus test of how people respond to the opportunity of unlimited power. Those who, like Boromir, took, looked to power as their salvation ultimately fall to the ring's corruption. Frodo carries the ring to destroy it, knowing it might mean his own death. Galadriel refuses the ring, knowing it will mean her dis diminishment. To refuse the wrong use of power has its cost, but to grasp at power has a greater cost still. Paul writes to the Philippians, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Power rightfully belonged to Jesus, but his response was to humble himself, even when his enemy deserved destruction. Jesus' incarnation was the beginning of this, as Jesus chose to be born into scandal, danger, obscurity, and discomfort. He announced his beginning to the nobodies. For followers, he chose blue-collar bumpkins over tidy churchmen or politicians. And his trajectory was toward a shameful death rather than a political empire. If he wanted to succeed in establishing a new way of things, he seemed to be doing everything wrong. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, my favorite, puts it, Jesus was doomed to succeed by failure. What does this way of being teach us? It informs our basic stance towards power. It's not ours to grasp at. We aren't called to a violent, forceful attack against those who disagree with us. Though our actions here do matter, the power and the glory aren't ours but the Lord's. Neither do the power and glory belong to our political or national group. Jesus didn't come to establish a theocracy, a country in which Christianity is mandated by the government. In the temptation story, we see Jesus' restraint. He stands for truth, but he won't use force to accomplish God's will. The story also reveals that our battle isn't only physical, but spiritual. There's an enemy that wants us to seize power and trust our own means instead of God. He whispers lies to us about who we are, who God is, and what his will is for us. He offers us shortcuts, an easy way that won't cost so much. Francis Shaver, who founded Libri, said that the biggest threat to the church today is trying to accomplish the work of the spirit through the power of the flesh. He emphasized that we aren't just trying to do the Lord's work, but the Lord's work in the Lord's way. It's actually possible to do great damage by doing good work in the wrong way. We can become so focused on political change that we're willing to compromise the gospel. The Jews only understood the Messiah as one who had come with political power to defeat the Roman rule. Jesus understood his mission as something much more deep and wide to save each person, body and soul, both Jew and Gentile, for eternity. Back. Know your identity in God. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed her into, him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. I felt tonight. <laughs> and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha and Mary were two sisters that Jesus loved. He visited them on a number of other occasions, probably more that we never heard about. Mary was practical and direct. She wasn't afraid to voice her opinion. And accordingly, Jesus engaged her in a theological exchange before he raised her brother Lazarus from death. Mary was a more emotional, I always think she has the artistic personality, um, the one, and she was the one with 
who Jesus wept with um, after Lazarus' death. Jesus seemed to really enjoy this family's hospitality. Doubtless, he expected that when he came to visit, he would enjoy a meal and a place to sleep. It would have been kind of rude if he got neither of those. And Helen, one of our students, made the soup. She pointed out the other day that she's always felt sorry for Martha. Somebody had to cook the dinner. <laughs> it's true. What Jesus reprimands Martha for isn't that she wanted to serve. That was good. Rather, it's her attitude towards serving. She was distracted and worried over doing it. Then she tried to pull her sister into that mindset by nagging at her. The story of Martha and Mary demonstrates that action for action's sake isn't the goal. Martha was trying so hard to do it all, to be the good Jewish hostess, when what Jesus wanted first was her heart. Action should flow out of contemplation of Christ. It's only in union with God that we can really understand his will. Otherwise, we easily get caught up in our own agendas and our priorities. Jesus himself demonstrates his own security and his identity with God. John writes that Jesus did not entrust himself to the people around him. I always think about that. Because he knew what was in their hearts. Instead, Jesus often withdrew from the, the crowds to be alone with God. There were many needs he could have engaged with, more people he could have healed, more miracles to be done. But he knew that prayer wasn't second fiddle to action. Prayer is where the life of justice begins. Jesus wasn't only a contemplative. Some people will paint him that way. After his cousin John was murdered by Herod, Jesus went to be alone. But when the crowds followed him into the wilderness, he had compassion on them, both on their physical and their spiritual needs. He fed them. But when they tried to make him king by force, he escaped. He knew exactly who he was and who he wasn't. He didn't trust his mission to anyone else's agenda. He knew that his father's will came above all else. And this came out of times of solitude and prayer. So too, our contemplation of Christ will lead us to act more and more with his vision for justice, not ours. My mom gave me this Henry Nouwen quote. <laughs> Thus, action is not activism. An activist wants to heal, restore, redeem, and recreate. But those acting within the house of God point through their action to the healing, restoring, redeeming, and recreating presence of God. Number four, and just systems. I really like that color that Jesus is wearing there. It's very dramatic. Jesus was never afraid to act when it was necessary. He targeted not just people's hearts, but also the unjust systems of the day, which you can forget. When Jesus stood at the entrance of the temple court in Jerusalem, the house of God, he was appalled. Instead of reverently worshipping their Lord, the Jews had turned the temple into a bazaar that ripped off the devout poor who paid marked up prices on animals being sold for sacrifice. Think of the sale of indulgences that occurred in the medieval church and the anger that it caused. There was a systemic injustice in the interest of money and power. Jesus could have addressed each person in the temple individually, tried to reason with them, change them, but instead he went out, fashioned a whip in a very premeditated act, and rushed back into the temple like a wild wind trashing tables and terrifying everyone. 
This was an unjust system, and Jesus was right to be angered by it. His protest was hardly a gentle one. Reasonable conversations only go so far. The very nature of evil is to close its eyes and ears to anything that would challenge it, especially when there's money and power behind it. We are right to be appalled and angered by injustice, and we're wrong if we have no response. It wasn't a nice, orderly thing for Jesus to do, sending the temple court into chaos. For Christians, the powers that be can never take the place of God. Though God is an ultimate control, governments and other powers can choose to disobey God. Where they clearly contradict biblical teaching, we can stand, not in violence, but if necessary, in civil disobedience. Last week, the students and I watched To Kill a Mockingbird, a wonderful movie, one of my favorites. It's the story of a Depression-era Alabama lawyer, Atticus Finch, appointed to defend a black man wrongfully accused of raping a white woman. Over the course of the film, it becomes clear that Bob Ewell, the woman's father, was actually her attacker and has framed the black man, Tom Robinson. Eventually, Tom dies tragically and Atticus goes to tell Tom's wife. Bob Ewell shows up and with great contempt spits in Atticus's face. Atticus is a physically powerful man and he could easily knock the short Bob Ewell to the ground. You can see that he wants to, his body is tense. But instead he merely wipes the spit off of his face, climbs into the car with his waiting young son and drives away. Atticus, voted the greatest movie hero of all time, was courageous not in blasting his way through opposition. His courageous restraint in the face of evil is so uncommon in Hollywood movies that it strikes us with power. He stood against injustice but resisted using violence. Unfortunately, most of us in the church are a lot more concerned with picking out individual sins than with how we take part in unjust systems. What I don't know can't hurt me, we think, or it can't really be that bad, or our country is rich because God's blessing us, or I just can't be bothered, and everyone else is doing it. I've thought those things myself before. But the church should be the first place that change is enacted, not the last. We should be the first to stand up for the rights of those who can't stand up for themselves. Unjust systems enable destructions of lives God values every bit as much as ours. We hope and pray for hearts to change, but there's also a time to stand even when no one, does, no one agrees. It's really hard to find the, the right picture for this, so it's a little open to interpretation. <laughs> Work as co-belligerents. Has anyone ever heard this phrase who is not from Libri? <laughs> it's a bit of an unusual one. I didn't learn it before Libri. I will explain it. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not accompany us. Don't stop him, Jesus replied, for whoever is not against you is for you. Francis Schaeffer used the term co-belligerence to describe joining with those who fight for justice on the same issues that we do. Justice isn't just us. I made that up. <laughs> Often Christians are critical of movements that seem too liberal and discard the whole thing rather than seeing what good elements should be supported and it could go the other way too. One such example is the Me Too movement. Although there are certainly parts of it that aren't based in biblical understanding of relationship or on what it means to be human, we know that Christ showed care for women who were oppressed and he would want us to do the same. 
we have a huge opportunity to dialogue with a society that's awakening to the dangers of uninhibited sexual expression. We can support the call for vulnerable people to be treated as humans, not objects, as well as address the root causes from a Christian perspective. Co-belligerence in one area doesn't mean that we make an alliance with those who disagree with us in another. I've been talking about this with Clark. What does this actually mean when you disagree with someone else? How can you join with them without making an alliance? Often Christians can feel uncomfortable supporting certain political positions, because they f but they feel they have no other choice. Well, we don't have to agree with everything a certain group proposes. We can sort through the issues with prayer and discernment. We can stand for the ones that reflect Christ's attitude toward injustice and openly disagree, even protest those that don't. This will show the watching world that we care about truth, not just about winning a political battle. Whenever truth shows up, we should affirm it, even if it comes from a surprising source. Whenever lies are spoken, we should speak against them, even if we think the lies are coming from someone who's on our side. On that note, we shouldn't pick only conservative issues to support, but seek the lordship of Christ over all of life. For example, many Christians recently have been protesting SOGI, a program in Canada, Canadian elementary schools that teaches about gender identity. This is a very important issue to address, but Christians are often notoriously lacking in concern toward issues of environmental stewardship and justice for the poor and other oppressed groups. We can't expect to be taken seriously on issues of se sexual ethics if that's the only thing that we stand for. We need a comprehensive, comprehensive vision for what it looks like to live toward God's kingdom, not just our own agendas. On that note, know what you're for. Jesus and his disciples wandered through the grain fields on a Sabbath day. I tried to avoid too many pictures where Jesus looks really white, but I couldn't help with this one. <laughs> the hungry disciples casually plucked and nibbled the heads of grain. Somehow the Pharisees, who were always watching, <laughs> descended in a flock. Look, your disciples are breaking the law. That's definitely work, and they can't work on the Sabbath. Jesus told them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right after that, the Pharisees test Jesus to see if he'd heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. He saw that the Pharisees were very good at keeping the law, but they had no compassion for a hungry or an injured man. The law had become a burden instead of a blessing. Ages before Isaiah wrote of the heart of God's law. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed? and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, 
when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. In the same chapter, Isaiah condemns people for not keeping the Sabbath, but they're to call the Sabbath a delight, not a legalistic burden. The laws God institutes aren't meant to keep us from being compassionate. As we stand for truth, we need to know what end we're working toward. What are we for? Just as someone who's lifting weights might put up a poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's literally the only bodybuilder I, I know, <laughs> for inspiration. So we need to know what our goal is. This major question has been echoing through my mind for the past while. What are Christians for? It seems that our culture mostly knows Christians as people who are against things rather than for things. I googled, why are Christians blank? Has anyone ever done this before? It's discouraging. The top suggestions were, why are Christians homophobic? Why are Christian countries rich? Why are Christian marriages failing? Why are Christian schools so expensive? <laughs> you know that? <laughs> My dad taught at a Christian school. Um, unless you believe that Canadians and Americans are rich because God wants us to exploit poor nations, none of these are positive things. I'd really love to see the day when instead the Google search read, why are Christians so loving? Why are Christians so generous? Why are Christian families so strong? Why are Christian schools so excellent? <laughs> I've often heard Clark tell how after he gave a talk on homosexuality at a conference, someone asked him what positive things the Bible has to say about sexuality. Clark was so flustered by the question that he had no coherent answer. He said he couldn't comprehend, and he's been thinking about it ever since. <laughs> so often we react against things that are unbiblical, but have forgotten what the Bible is for. We can become a people who represent a narrow God, one of legalism and prohibitions, just like the Pharisees. In their view, being a good Jew meant slavish obedience to hundreds of man-made regulations. Jesus told them the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. What if people saw us as those who risked ourselves so that others might experience the joy we have? What if instead of just being against abortion, Christians were eager to adopt unwanted children? Our actions towards a hurting world are not meant to be just defensive or offensive, but to be creative. They should bring beauty and goodness. I recently read how the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, has used creative and even humorous solutions to reduce crime in his city, including hundreds of mimes to mimic traffic offenders, <laughs> a night where men are encouraged to stay home and take care of the kids while their wives go out, and his own appearances dressed in a costume as super citizen. The mayor doesn't just punish offenders, but inspires people with a vision of what they could achieve together. Jesus used stories to capture people's imaginations and their hearts. He lived with freedom and joy and demonstrated what a world lived in his way might look like. Anton de Saint-Exupéry, aviator and author of The Little Prince, said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I love that. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech has had lasting appeal because it takes just this approach. Not just what are we against, but what are we for? What is the end we're working towards? What is the dream? 
Malcolm X, who took a slightly different approach, wrote of this speech in his autobiography. Who ever heard of angry revolutionaries swinging their bare feet together with their oppressor in lily pad pools with gospels and guitars and I have a dream speeches? Anger is a fully appropriate response toward injustice, but it's not enough. Anger should never be the end, but move us toward the goal, toward the tree of life with leaves of healing for the nations. Our passion for the love and truth of Christ should always be the focus. to the hard take up your cross even as we inspire people with the beauty and goodness of the gospel we can't forget that the central symbol of Christianity isn't beautiful at all an instrument of torture Jesus' call for justice was never political grandstanding how do we know? because he died for it he was doomed to succeed by failure Leading up to his death, Jesus keeps trying to prepare his disciples, but they don't get it. Peter finally clues in and is shocked. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't what was supposed to happen. Does Jesus have a death wish? What about the mission? What about the cause? Someone has to intervene and talk sense into him. Peter takes one for the team. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus hurls back. Peter thinks he's loving his Lord, but he's actually using the same techniques Satan used in his temptation. There's got to be an easier way. Use your power. You don't have to suffer, let alone die. How often do we tell ourselves or each other, there's got to be an easier way. You don't have to suffer. Surely God doesn't mean that. But the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It requires us to die to self. We can no longer be number one. This doesn't mean it's wrong to enjoy the good gifts God gives us. We often see Jesus at a party. But we have to realize that if we really want to stand for justice, we have to make personal sacrifices to be consistent with that. Oh, it's so hard to practice what I preach. <laughs> this is really convicting for me because I know I feel it's my right to drive all over the town and go to restaurants and I'm mad that I have to try and buy ethical meat because my vegetarian friend convicted me because <laughs> I have to go to an extra store and spend a bit more money. I complain if I think my lifestyle is cramped by money or time or other resources being lack. But Jesus calls us to die to self. He shows us the example of willingness to lay down his very life and love. Jesus was always clear about the cost. He never sugarcoated the truth with slick advertising. From the beginning, he left behind the comfort of his home, and he called his followers to do the same. Foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When he called his disciples to take up the cross he himself would bear, this was, as Philip Yancey says, the least manipulative invitation that has ever been given. Jesus was no sleazy salesman. His life demonstrated exactly what the cost would be. Jesus tells his followers, all men will hate you because of me. That's really difficult for conflict avoidant people, especially us Canadians, to hear. It doesn't sound very nice. Can't we just have polite conversation instead? If we just say sorry enough times, they won't get mad at us, eh? <laughs> but truth hurts. John tells how people rejected Jesus as the light. Who hides in front of a spotlight? 
I tried, it didn't work. Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to, night, come to light. Jesus tells his disciples, this light will make people angry enough to kill them. Sin causes people to hide, and they're not friendly to anyone who peeks under the bed. But if we just make people mad at us, it's not a gold star on our chart automatically. So it's hard for me to imagine. I have heard that some people see conflict as a sign that they're doing things right. <laughs> well, not necessarily. You can't stop people from getting mad, even angry enough to kill, but it should be for the right reasons. We shouldn't act out of violence, even if others do. If we follow the way of the cross, we can expect to make enemies. Yes. But also we can expect to go without the luxuries we think we deserve. Not every person is called to live like St. Francis, barefoot and broke. Lydia was a wealthy merchant in the New Testament. Uh, she followed God's call, not by selling everything, but by opening her home in hospitality. The key is that we don't consider our comfort more important than God's call, wherever it leads. And it will lead all of us to make some kind of sacrifice. Jesus himself, Lord of heaven and earth, demonstrated the self-giving love. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor in the incarnation and then at last humbled himself to be tortured, spit at, and killed. He knew exactly who he was and why he was there. He was doomed to succeed by failure. And no one, not his closest friends, nor Satan himself, could turn him away. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. And this time it wasn't a metaphor. We often think of it as a metaphor because most of us in this area will never have to consider dying for our faith, probably. But for the disciples, who had likely seen crucifixions of Jewish rebels before, this was no poetic turn of phrase. Jesus reminds his disciples that in their vulnerable position, even if they are killed, and many early Christians were, they're seen and loved by God, who knows every hair on their head. In other countries, Christians suffer torture and death. In our own country, the pressure on Christians in certain careers is mounting. That's no small thing to face losing your job, potentially. But we can understand this is part of an unseen battle we only catch glimpses of now and then. We never know fully what part we have to play. We can only be obedient to the call of a God who loves us. And after all, we already know the end of the big story. It doesn't stop at the cross. What looks like failure did succeed. What seemed like a shameful spectacle brought God his greatest glory. Take up our cross to die, but there's no death in Jesus Christ without a resurrection. Everything we lay down for him, whether our time, our money, our self-centered ways, or even our lives, will be transformed. Death in Jesus always brings new life. But death is never easy. Even Jesus prayed with great agony that the cup be taken from him. We stand here today talking about Jesus because people who loved him were willing to give him their lives. I've met countless people at Libri who know that following Jesus might mean heartbreaking loss. Maybe they'll lose a job they love, 
Maybe they'll never get married. Maybe they'll be estranged from a child. Those are all real losses, real ways of taking up the cross. Forgive your enemies. Perhaps the very hardest part of taking up our cross is forgiving. Jesus taught his disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Surely Jesus didn't mean that. But he demonstrated this same love on the cross. Recently, I listened to a podcast on being, I love that one, about two young men from very different backgrounds who attended the same American college. Matthew Stevenson was raised as an Orthodox Jew, and every weekend he faithfully celebrated the Shabbat dinner with his friends. Derek Black's father had started a white supremacist website that taught that all Jews should be kicked out of America. Derek had been raised to view Jews as enemies, and he actively spread his views organizing conferences and political campaigns. Once his classmates discovered who Derek was, they hated him. But Matthew had a different response. Let's invite him to Shabbat dinner, he decided. He knew Derek openly advocated hatred towards him, his family and his friends, but he invited him to dinner. Matthew warned his friends that no one was allowed to ask Derek about his political beliefs, at least not at first. Amazingly, Derek came to dinner, and he kept coming. The Jewish kids tried to get to know him as a full person, welcoming him in, eating with him, laughing together. Eventually, Derek began to realize that what he believed about Jews, what he experienced at these dinners, just didn't fit together. At some point, his worldview crumbled, and they were there for him then too. Out of the rubble came a new person, one who became a defender of the people he had hated. As Jesus died an unjust death, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems like they pretty much did know what they were doing. It's impossible to accidentally nail someone to a cross. But they didn't know the true depth and consequence of their sins. Sin had blinded them to the identity of the one they had crucified. So too, as Jesus gives his own, us his own heart, we can have compassion on those who have sold themselves to carrying out evil. It's not only damaging to the oppressed, but also to the oppressors. Just because someone has power doesn't mean they're well. Often, when empires look the strongest, the corruption inside has hollowed them out so that they may collapse, like a tree destroyed from the inside. This is how Matthew was able to see Derek as a human to be treated with respect, even when Derek acted without respect for others. Matthew hoped for Derek's redemption, not his destruction. As Christians join with others to support the same causes, we can provide a powerful witness in a particular way, the way of forgiveness. Jesus not only loved his enemies, but he demonstrated his love through dying for them. Think of the wealthy 1%. Think of the abusers of women. Think of the corrupt politicians, the scandal-ridden church leaders, the heads of destructive corporations, the drug lords, and the pimps. Jesus came to die for each one of those people as much as he did for those they exploit. That's an amazingly hard message to swallow in a day where justice is often equated with revenge. 
Jesus advocates a radical world in which justice means not getting even but forgiving. Now, I want to be really careful here. This in no way means that we should turn a blind eye to injustice or allow the perpetrators to go unpunished. Derek uh, said that if he had only been invited to Shabbat dinners, he probably wouldn't have changed. He also needed the people who confronted him and said, how can you say these things? As I said earlier, anger is an appropriate response to injustice. Jesus was angry when he entered the temple and saw that it was being used for unjust and unholy purposes. His anger was righteous. He gave scathing critiques of religious leaders who burdened people and did nothing to help them. He said that those who caused children to sin would be better off drowned with a millstone tied around their neck. He was passionate about protecting the vulnerable. But ultimately, God's justice is shaped like the cross. While ours is about equality and fairness, God's is about redeeming love. In his plan, no one gets what they deserve. Even the best of us doesn't deserve God's kindness, a kindness that suffered and died for us. If the gospel is good news for everyone, that means we always have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to love the one who's against me? Now, love might look like saying, it's a wicked thing to abuse and oppress, and the public needs to be protected from you. You're going to jail for your own sake and theirs. But love never delights in revenge. In the Beatitudes, Jesus challenges the retributive concept of justice. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's a lot more to this teaching than I can go into here. And I admit that it's one of those passages that makes me say, surely Jesus doesn't mean that. We had a lunch discussion about it, a debate um, this past week, with some um, variety of, of ideas about it. But whether we should actually let someone, just passively let someone beat us up is a question for a different day. I don't think that's exactly what's being said here. But I don't think that there's any way we can interpret this passage to mean that we're allowed to beat our enemies up. Ronald Sider writes, the members of Jesus' new messianic kingdom were to love opponents, even oppressively persecuting enemies, so deeply that they could wholeheartedly pray for their well-being and actively demonstrate in spontaneous actions that exceeded their unjust demands that they truly love them as persons. The image of the cross is of God himself with arms stretched in agony toward those who nailed him there. Our lament and prayers aren't only for the oppressed, but also for the oppressor's souls. Not only does Jesus suffer insult and injury, even his own shameful death, but he prays for those who persecute him. He doesn't just tolerate them, but forgives them. Just as he taught his disciples to love their enemies, he demonstrates that love, even in his dying moments. It's only through Jesus that we can do the same. It's entirely against our own instincts to open our hearts and love to those who actively try to hurt us. But when through the Spirit's help we forgive, it actually takes power away from oppressors, the power to control our hearts. Bless those who persecute you, Paul says in Romans. Bless and do not curse. That 
cuts against our instincts to slander anyone who offends us, get on Twitter and Facebook and make them look like an idiot. Instead, Jesus calls us to pray for the good of those who oppose us. In most of our dialogues around justice, we use the language of us and them. The big corporation versus the little farmers. The government versus the First Nations. The conservatives versus the liberals. How radically would our actions and conversations change if we actually committed to love and pray for the other side? What if we saw people we fundamentally disagree with, not as punching bags, but as people to be loved? It's hard to imagine how we could kill our enemies while loving them. Love is what casts out fear, and fear is so often what drives us to violence. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he tells them, all men will hate you because of me. But he doesn't allow them to bring a staff or a sword for protection. Moreover, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He reminds them who the real enemy is the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When we think of each other as the primary enemies, we can forget that the battle is not against flesh and blood. We can become so intent on destroying each other that we don't realize it's our own hearts that are being destroyed. I was just going to have no picture here at all because we don't know what it's going to be like, but (laughs) wait for the kingdom of God. It's the last one. It's really hard to give this kind of lecture because I keep realizing how short I fall of what Jesus demonstrated. That's why I wanted to research this, to be challenged. I fear preaching something I'm so far from practicing. Every section of this talk has reminded me that I have so far to go on the way of the cross. But this isn't news to Jesus. When theologians speak of the kingdom of God, they sometimes use the phrase, already not yet. I like it. Jesus spoke of the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, and yet we see that injustice remains. Jesus has been glorified and given power, but not everything is subject to him yet. Jesus won't force human hearts to serve him. God's kingdom comes in God's timing and power, not ours. One day the earthly reality will match the heavenly one. Jesus never diminishes the importance of working for justice and healing on earth. Jesus healed people knowing they would get sick again someday. Jesus raised Lazarus knowing that one day Lazarus would die again. Some people might see it as pointless, but Jesus didn't. Our actions in this world matter, and something of them will last. Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. There's that light image again. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. What we build here matters. The foundation we begin with matters. That's the truth of Jesus Christ. But what we build with also matters. Do we build out of love, or out of self-righteousness, or greed, or the drive for success? How tragic it is to work for what we can't survive. 
I've had lots of conversations at Libri about how we deal with the vast number of social justice causes demanding our attention. They may be good, but we only have so many resources, so much money, so much time. We can easily become burnt out and exhausted by the amount of need in this world. Many of us have been there. We can think it's our job to save everyone. I've met many people here who are, and elsewhere who are jaded by work in ministry or nonprofits, having been wrung dry for whatever they could give. Some groups even believe it's humanity's job to urge Christ's second coming by preaching to a certain number of people or performing other deeds. This isn't what Jesus is asking from us. I often think of the time I've spent visiting the L'Arche community in Vancouver. It's an international organization, community where people live with those um, called core members, people with developmental disabilities. One might think that the normal people are the ones with all the gifts to offer, while the people with disabilities are the ones who have to receive. Definitely there's a high level of patient care on the part of the assistants there. But whenever I've visited, I've been blessed again and again by the simple welcome the core members give me. It might be a hug, a question, a smile, but they remain hospitable in the simple ways that they can be. It's really touched me deeply. <coughs> Once a young boy chose to offer Jesus his lunch instead of clinging to the little he had. Jesus, who could have made bread from stones, received this gift, which could never be enough, and made it abundant. He never asked the hungry crowd for a criminal record check, a resume, or notes to prove that they hadn't slept through his sermon. He opened his hands, and they simply received. There will always be so much more to be done than what we can do. But the good news is that our worth doesn't live in what we can do for Jesus. All we need to do is come with open hands. Hands that don't cling to what we think is ours by right. Hands that don't try to work a miracle on their own strength. Hands that simply receive from a God who's ready to give us so much more. Our weakness in the face of evil and our lament over injustice should bring us more and more to Jesus. If we live obscure lives that seem marked by failure, we are still loved. In the end, though God chooses us to be bearers of his peace, his justice doesn't depend on us. He alone is the one who can bind up the brokenhearted, release the captives, and cause the blind to see. All right. So, after our lectures, you guys have time for discussion. And I have laid a lot on you, so I hope that I will get a lot back. <laughs> and any comments or questions are welcome. Was that you? No? Scratching your head? <laughs> All right, and you're, and you're there for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, troublemaker in the front. Um, so one of the things that I find fascinating about Jesus, and I think it relates to the heading of the topic, is he stands. You know, when I read the Gospels, I, I noticed that he stands in um, in the middle of two. Um, politi of a political tension with two major factions. The faction of Rome and the faction of the Jews, which is represented by the Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth. Um, but if you look at Jesus' criticisms, 
they are primarily directed to his own tradition. Right? There's very little that I've ever I've seen um, of Jesus in in critis criticism towards Rome. I, I, I when I when I see him in the interactions with the with the legions and such, um, you know, it's okay. Okay, cool. Go. Oh wow, you have good faith, and hear your servants well, and and go on out. And yet, when he when he confronts the the Pharisees and such, like like he, he wasn't attacking a Roman garrison. The, the moment the moment in the New Testament where he uses physical violence is in the most sacred location in Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so. That to me is 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 a is a radical because 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 it is primarily um, addressing their own side of a of attention. Um, I don't know where exactly I was going with that, but how you want to make more comments on that? Well, I I want to ask you why you think that is. <laughs> why well, I, I think it has to do with the kind of person Jesus was. Um, that's that's my answer as Josh Bedford. <laughs> That's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, does anyone else have anything to say to that? This isn't me just trying to <laughs> escape the question, but I'm curious <laughs> to hear other people's. I think for one thing, if he'd been speaking out against the Romans, he wouldn't have, like, that would have caused problems with him politically, not just among the Jews, but he could have, like, he would have had two groups of people kind of after him. Which he did by the end. Well, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, actively there would have, you know, right. like if, it, if he'd been speaking out against him, I think it would have been a lot worse right. from the Romans. Right, I think that's a, a really good point. Like you see that um, even when when Jesus is before Pilate, the, he's kind of like, this is like a Jewish problem. Why don't you deal with it yourselves? Mm -hmm. um, and he, they sort of don't seem to have paid a lot of attention to him before then. I, it's hard to say for sure, but... Um, but yeah, and and like Rome's wrath could be great <laughs> and swift. So and he, you know, he consistently throughout his ministry tells people like don't don't say who I am, <laughs> don't don't give me too much attention because I I have work to do, I have things I need to do. Um, and then people went out and did it anyways, and he couldn't go into towns and stuff like that. So he wasn't trying to, like, hit the the big name people and rise to the top quickly for better or for worse. Yeah. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I was wondering if it has something to do with the fact that um, you know, Jews were God's chosen people. So, <coughs> uh, and Paul also says that salvation first comes to Jews and to Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Also, while Christ's right. criticism first comes to Jews, and then the Gentiles that came after with Peter and the, the unclean animals. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very involved. Yeah. Jesus was a Jew. It's <laughs> a logical place to start. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my answer was because of the kind of person Jesus was. I, I to, to emphasize to expand that out a little bit. Um, I I think different people have different conceptions on what is patriotism and what is patriotic, mm -hmm. right? So um, there there is the Jesuses of the world, which are the, like Gore Vidal and Noam Chomsky and such, who who will see the tradition under which they they inhabit as as something that has elements within it that are good. I think I think Jesus. Um, in history, is, is looking at is is in a, in a tradition that he fundamentally is a part of. He is a part of Judaism. He is um, he he knows the scriptures forwards and backwards. He's read the prophets and he's and he's immersed in in that tradition. But um, whereas someone like a Barabbas 
is wants to fight and die for their country and and, and or defend the tr the tradition you know um america right or wrong is, is a slogan along that line of that of, of what i'm at this moment coining as the barabbas tradition um <laughs> there the there is the idea of the ideals of Judaism as Jesus sees them are the law is, is, is for man, you know, you know, the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath, and so on and so forth. So I think there are different, I think different personality types will emphasize the rigidity of a structure versus the spirit of a structure. Yeah, and Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, it's not a deconstruction um, but fulfillment mm -hmm. um, yeah it's, a, it's very interesting how we can kind of look at justice as like like I've seen some people come through Libri who deconstructed everything but now they have nothing left um, there's nothing that they're for anymore and it's a mess <laughs> Cody you know, just to add to that I just thought of something um, there's this writer named Steve, Steve Pressfield. I don't know if anybody's read him, but he writes about, okay, he writes, he wrote this book called War of Art, uh, which is amazing. It's about creativity and stuff. But in it, he talks specifically about how um, if you're not being an artist, like he gives the example of Hitler. The, we have an inner artist, whatever that might be, and an inner fundamentalist. And he's like, if you're not nurturing your art, your creativity, your creative capacity to give something to the world, there's a little bit of dying goes on and your inner fundamentalist will come out. And that, that's more the, what are you against? And, and we, we, you know, I can attest to that. Definitely in myself, I've seen that where I walk away from something, ooh, I kind of, I didn't really give light. I kind of I took away a little bit there. And, and I definitely think that. So, what I was going to say is I think there is something really, um, when I think of Christ and I think of activism, we, um, you kind of touched on this, but we run the risk of the cause often becomes mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. um, rather than God being the source. Mm -hmm. And when you get, when you aim for that, it's like, uh, I'm a, I'm a, my cause is I'm a, I'm a feminist, I want equality, and it's like, okay, that's great, and I'm, I mean that sincerely, like, equality, that's great, or I, I hate, let's fight against it, poverty, I'm a communist, and it's like, okay, great, and it's when you pursue those things uh, so stringently, it becomes that fundamentalist dynamic, whereas you aim, like, Christ, and I've got some discordant thoughts here, but when Christ was alive, as an example of that, the like the zealots and the um, like all those groups they they were like you're gonna you're gonna be super Jesus you're gonna destroy our enemies and t you'll take care of this and he's like no I'm way up here I'm gonna get I'm gonna do that but far more than you can imagine because he's connected to the source so what am I trying to say with that um, yeah I think that's aiming to God and giving God what is God's and seeing him and his kingdom, I think reconciles all these little tiny divisions, mm -hmm. hopefully more so than we can ever imagine, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Yeah. So that's kind of my, I don't have, it's not a question, but if you want to tell me what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's super helpful. And I think, I think sometimes we even see with these causes of social justice, it can become a huge factor of identity for people. Um, and people are looking for something that they can kind of get on board with and um, 
gives them a sense of meaning and purpose in life. But if that's kind of the measure of where it ends, I think that, that it can become this distorted thing, like something that's supposed to be good that gets twisted and becomes God instead of God. Um, yeah, I think I have a friend, uh, she's not a Christian, but she she has a, a friend who um, is very into social justice, but she said that she, the way that she talks about people who disagree with her, she's very hateful towards them, and she she doesn't like it. She's like, I don't know why why she does that she, when she's supporting causes that are supposed to be for justice. And um, and yeah, it was a really interesting conversation to have with her. And I think it's so often the cause that we're for and the way that we go about the cause co like contradict each other and actually. Um, what's the word, undercut our, our argument or our, what we're for because of the way we do it. Yeah. Uh, I thought um, the stuff you put out on co-belligerence uh, was interesting. Um, mm. and, and some of the examples, for example, the Me Too movement and so on. Mm. Um, and I think it is, I, I, I really agree that it is a great opportunity to um, uh, take common cause with some of these things, I, especially the environmental issues. I think mm. it's one of the rare times where our culture and we ought to be on the same wavelength pretty much on, on that issue. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a great opportunity. It's a positive. Instead of being against things all the time, mm -hmm. we, can, we can be positive. Um, uh, but it's also interesting that without uh, what, what we can bring to it also is the other side of that, about forgiving your enemies and so on. Like it, I find it interesting with the Me Too movement, for example, there, there's no hope of re redemption or forgiveness for those who have yeah. violated. Yeah, them. right. And and maybe and you know maybe some a lot of people would say yeah there shouldn't be, mm -hmm. but you know from our perspective yeah there 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 is hope mm -hmm. you know, even for those people, mm -hmm. um, and um, so we can bring that to that right. you know a more totally. kind of maybe holistic um, approach than than just demonizing. Yeah. You know they're they're today's demons right, right? so right. maybe in. In Puritan America, although that's just a distortion, but anyway, according to Hawthorne, anyway, the the, the, the heart of the, the adulteress was the demon, right? Mm -hmm. The scarlet letter. But the scarlet letter, we all every age will have its scarlet right. letter. <laughs> right. And in, in our current period right now, the scarlet letter are those who have, like this judge who's up for, you know, who have um, very possibly done some, done some terrible things in their past. Right. But there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness for those people. Right. Um, so, you know, how do we have that voice without on the other hand seeming to side with mm -hmm. them <laughs> right you know what i mean that's that's mm -hmm. a tricky line to to walk yeah it's a very tricky line to walk <laughs> uh, it's the, yeah that's an it's an issue i've been thinking a lot about because yeah. that's troubled me um that i've seen that it, that particular issue get to to extremes in some cases where it's um it seems very revenge based but sure. at the same time like we need to take this really seriously that these things right. are going on and not right. not say well let's not be too hard on people right. or whatever or oh well should they really lose their job you know like there needs to be <laughs> justice yeah. done yeah. but at the same time like what with what heart are we doing it is yeah. and that's you know partly why i said these things about oppressors like it's not good for these people who are oppressing women are treating women this way it's bad for them and we need to work for their restoration even if they don't even if they don't want it yeah. and maybe restoration looks like they spend time in jail or they never get out of jail <laughs> like um i but. remember and you know I, I i remember one time having a conversation with a, a woman who was a um worked in, in prison with pedophiles hmm. and um 
And I, even here, even I, as a, as a believer, I said, well, I guess, you know, once a pedophile, you're kind of done, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of thought that way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was quite shocked when she, not a Christian, said, no. She said, no, they, they we, we've had good, pretty good success with mm -hmm. pedophile. And uh, not always, but we've had pretty And I kind of caught myself as I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, like I was being less, you know, hopeful or merciful than this other person. So, yeah, yeah. we can easily get tripped up into, right. into that. And I think that's that's partly how we draw these circles of, of um, what one Labrie guy calls it, respectable sin and not respectable yeah. sin. Yeah. So like, well, these are the things that it's like okay to do. Everybody kind of does these things, right. and then these are the things that I would never do. Yeah. And right. and and that's really about our own image of ourselves, not really about what God's conception of morality is. Mm. Um, and and yeah, so it's. So that's when people get on the outside of that circle and then we all gang up on the inside mm -hmm. and to say like that's something that God can never forgive. Um, right. Yeah, there's a, a pop song I keep hearing on the radio it says there's some there's some things only God can forgive and mm -hmm. it's an interesting way to think about it but mm -hmm. I think that even if forgiveness takes a long time that that's what we want to aim towards. Yeah, Cody. One thing just to add to that too is I often think and it's quite scary actually because it's kind of like a the subtext of, of how we're living, what's going on underneath, and that is, um, I wonder how much our culture and media is shaping our, our beliefs and our values, and mm -hmm. even as believers, right? Because I look at, or one thing a friend brought up the other day, just on that note with me too, that's kind of funny when you think about it, not ha ha fun. Um, <laughs> you look at like comedians, for example, like Louis C.K., and what I'm not going to go into, but some of his stuff was very inappropriate mm -hmm. and his career is pretty much toast and done and he's you know he's a pariah and all that kind of stuff but yet you look at Mike Tyson who is a convicted and he did his time stuff convicted for rape and went to prison he's celebrated and he's kind of like you know fun Mike T he's got a cartoon and I'm not saying he shouldn't <laughs> have these things people change right mm -hmm. but I just take a step back and I look at that kind of dichotomy and it's mm -hmm. it's it's very puzzling because I wonder how subordinate we are to um, to you know cultural trends and things like that. Where because mm -hmm. there's this dissonance, right? right. And, and right. Uh, it, I see that playing out in, in how we frame activism and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's it's pretty scary when you think mm -hmm. about it. And there are times where the where the current shifts, and we realize, whoa, we've been getting it way wrong. Like slavery was one of those examples yeah. where it's like. Oh, tons of Christians were totally fine with this, and mm. it was wrong, mm. and and that changed society forever. So mm. I think there are times where it's like, okay, just because we've always been comfortable with it <laughs> doesn't mean it was okay. Um, and, and yeah, there's been tons of movements like that, and so I think yeah, it's easy to treat things lightly, but then it, of course it often <laughs> swings to the other extreme, and maybe sometimes it has to for it to settle back down. But but yeah, we should be a voice of reason <laughs> in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, what you said about um, your reaction compared to this lady who was not a Christian, mm -hmm. that just remind, brought me back to this question about Jesus um, verbally or t sort of attacking the Jewish people but not the Roman people. Mm -hmm. But like the um, Jewish in that case, Christian in this case, people, they were the people of God, they were the people who should have known mm -hmm. better, and so he was showing, trying to show them, rather than attacking these people who had, that were pagans, mm -hmm. he was trying to show them, like, 
this is not how God wants you to be living your life. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. and he's trying to show them the the way of love, the way that God right. wants them to live. Right. And so um, so that's probably like mm -hmm. one of the bigger ways or reasons why mm -hmm. they were the ones that he really talked to. Mm -hmm. That's a good point because they were misrepresenting himself. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't have a lot of patience for that. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we forget, um, I, well, I should say, I just use myself, that it took me a while to, when you, when you read the Gospels, if you tried to develop a philosophy of justice or based on Jesus' life and the way he lived, it could be very challenging because. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and one of the things that I came to, I think, understand is that Jesus had a very specific mission, and it's not our mission, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. which sounds kind of, you know, really? <laughs> yeah. But in a sense, it, it really isn't. Um, he actually said that, you know. Um, we have a different mission. He came to do a particular thing, and he did it. And he knew it exactly what he was doing. Like, you know, when you read the Gospels, you, you kind of come away that he was very much in charge of his mm -hmm. destiny, right? Um, but it's not... It's not the same as our mission, um, and and I think sometimes that's helpful to me at least in trying to understand. Okay, well then, what is our mission, and how is it different from his? You know, but how is it still patterned on certain mm -hmm. principles that he? You know, that that seems to be, and that you know that takes a lot of work to work that out. But, yeah, right. <laughs> tell me, <laughs> that's, the, that's the hard part. Yeah. Right. Well, one big yeah. thing is that we're not God, so right. we're not perfect, yeah. and that means like whatever we do is going to have sinful nature involved and we're going to get things wrong and mm -hmm. have to apologize and repent and yeah be like take a step back <laughs> redo it again um and yeah and we need yeah it's 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 different <laughs> you're right it's different yeah yeah and so i was trying to hopefully just look for some more general principles that we can take out of mm -hmm. how jesus acted um but yeah and uh, yeah it's not yeah, it's definitely not going to look exactly the same for every person either. And no. I think, I think you know, right. so often yeah. we can have our idea of, like, this is what it looks like to take up your cross or whatever. You have to move to a third world country and live in mm. poverty and all these things. But, um, like, I was giving the example of Lydia. <laughs> like, she, she did something out of her wealth that was actually helpful for the early church. And um, mm. and I think that, yeah, we don't we just can't hold on to those things. And maybe God would call us to do that. But maybe not. But <laughs> um, yeah. So, what does faithfulness look like for each one of us? Is mm -hmm. the question not? What is the pattern for everyone? Yeah. Um, it's not really like a comment on what you spoke on, but like very much agreeing with what you said. And I think like from what I've been seeing too, like one of the implications of us like not being Christ and not having that same mission mm -hmm. is that unlike Christ, we are not solitary fighters. Mm -hmm. um, we have mm -hmm. like we're called upon to be to take part in this community, like right. as, as a church community or or yeah, a Christian community, right. to fight together and the co belligerence even that I think, because mm -hmm. um, Christ was very much yeah you know like the solitary going out into the desert spending time uh, praying. We should all spend time praying, mm -hmm. um, but we're also called upon to be part of the body of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful, and that's something that I I, I wish that I touched on more than that. Yeah, yeah. because I think. Um, yeah, you see that Jesus, like when John says Jesus did not entrust himself to a man, like there's a way in which it's not the same for us <laughs> because we are humans <laughs> um, and we need each other and, and we need to start from that position of humility where we have people speaking into our lives <laughs> and saying, well, maybe not this way or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, I think you're right. We're not lone wolves. And Jesus, but even Jesus had his, had a community of people that he 
uh, he traveled with, and he could have been totally alone wolfing it, but he didn't. He chose to hang out with people who are like pretty frustrating sometimes. <laughs> you read the Gospels and you're like, really? You think Jesus would go for that? What are you talking about? Um, just he was patient. On what, uh, just, just, it brought to mind a quote I read a while back, but I've never, never forgotten it. This fellow said, um, it's not so much that the church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a really interesting way to put it, you know, yeah. because it's God's mission, and the church is his, his key instrument in enacting that mission mm-hmm. in the world. So that brings the community aspect mm-hmm. into it that I think is mm-hmm. really vital. Yeah. yeah, and I think, but I think that that goes back to, to the point of Jesus standing in, in the stream of history. Like, he, he didn't just kind of appear out of nowhere, and here right. I am, I'm Jesus. Like, right. he he stood within the tradition of scripture mm-hmm. um, and he quoted scripture all the time. And so we stand in that, that history too. And the, like with the church and I think often to Christians, like it's easy to be really critical of the church. All of us probably who have spent mm-hmm. any time in the church have ways that we've been hurt by the church, but we're also all part of the church, whether or not we even <laughs> go to church on a Sunday. Um, and, and because of that, we, we work within that, that community. Um, and so we want to work for the good of those people too and, and not just tear down that, um, that group of people, which is, easy, it's, that's the easy way to do things. <laughs> it's easier to deconstruct than to build. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of co-belligerence. I mean, it's just such a profound idea as the more you work with it. But in relation, it calls the church out of itself that co-belligerence says, you know, pursue what is, tr- you know, not not just, I mean, the church needs to look at itself. It needs to critique itself when it is uh, a prophetic, accre- uh, the prophetic critique often did not go toward the culture as much as mm-hmm. the church mm-hmm. itself or the people of God. But <clears throat> co-belligerence is this idea that we need to say, how are we looking toward the kingdom of God mm-hmm. or God establishing his kingdom, not through our efforts, mm-hmm. but calling us out of just our own communities mm-hmm. and to say okay we need to humble ourselves and say instead of getting just toward our pet projects mm-hmm. because the church loves to fall into its pet projects mm-hmm. but to say actually you know the me too movement did not start within the church mm-hmm. for example to say okay well you got there first <laughs> thank god for that mm-hmm. you know let's join mm-hmm. uh, you know with 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 wisdom or whatever it might be uh, so I, I think that co-belligerence is really quite something uh, yeah. because, and also to, that it's a co-belligerence, it's, it's not an alliance. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. understanding that, okay, we're not just joining forces to both get a piece of the pie in the same way, mm-hmm. but that we have a distinct purpose to go in here and we're, we're praying that God will work through you as well as us, even if you don't know God or... Right. So. That's a really good point, that it's not just about kind of manipulating things by getting more people on board or like to sign our petition or whatever, but for that greater purpose, which is God's kingdom. Um, I, I do like the term co-belligerence as well. I just sometimes wonder about the belligerence part. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and yeah, again, not, it, just, it, doesn't, it can't have a negative. It doesn't have to. And I do think that we need to, in many times, be in a mode of fighting. Um, but I, I often, from just like from what you were talking about tonight, the different <coughs> pieces of that is more about the restoration and the redemption and, and how, in particular as Christians, how do we do that within social justice movements that aren't Christian focused um, and, and come alongside 
and work with them. And maybe corporate belligerence is a good model, but I think there's also models that we can stand, al stand alongside without necessarily feeling like we need to be belligerent against those who maybe aren't in the same place. I, I don't know, it's, it's just sort of trying to figure out how to, I, I get that and I think it's a great model, but I also wonder about if it's yeah. always the best approach, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and I think I think that term. Yeah, and it's still a concept I'm processing too. But I think that term belligerent can sometimes be like a little bit misleading too, because I think there are times where you do like dig in your heels and you know protest or whatever it is. Um, but I think there's also uh, also you need to ask yourself the same question with those people. It's like, okay, what is the thing that we're for? What are we what are we towards? Not just what are we against? Um, and yeah, for every for every time we're saying no, it's so that we can say yes to some something. So. But I do think there is a time where you where you do dig in your heels, for sure, too. I don't know, Clark, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, yourself? I don't know exactly why he used that term or if he took it from someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that in a day and age when Christians, particularly in our own day and age, like immediate contact belligerence is mm -hmm. what evangelicalism is seen as. <laughs> and we have to be very careful with that. Um, and so we do often need to nuance our language. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is an older word, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, probably from the 70s. I think the idea is to, um, to contest or civil disobedience where the government is requiring us or requiring society to go against mm -hmm. um, uh, God's goodness in, in that sense. And to saying, okay, we need to, like you said, dig in our heels. Of course, you need to think about how to do that. But uh, but a protest, for instance, just a protest is a peaceful democratic process, mm -hmm. or a part of our democratic process. So it's not trying to you know go into parliament and shoot things up, or or to cast rocks at people, or um, even though I mean sometimes protests can become just belligerent. Uh, I think that's very difficult for us to know how to peacefully protest, but I think of Martin Luther King as maybe a, a good idea of peaceful belligerence, because he wasn't acting the good good boy, he wasn't mm -hmm. acting in line, he was actually causing civil disturbance, mm -hmm. and causing, and being civilly disobedient, and so in that sense, I think that the idea of belligerence is more of along the lines of Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. who I know that Schaefer um, looked up to in terms of uh, his his battle against um, uh, for civil rights. I was going to say when I was actually thinking of that exact thing that the civil rights movement in the U.S. may actually be an interesting case study of the churches of, of the churches alone because what the, what's lost in the secular narrative of that movement is how deeply Christian it was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that that just is, tends to be lost, but it, but it really was profoundly. And now, unfortunately, not so much white evangelical <laughs> Christians, <laughs> right. um, but nonetheless, many, many uh, Christians, including, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. himself, being a preacher. Um, so it is an interesting example of how they, he, 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 he married kind of um, a secular cause. It you know, became a secular cause, but it was fueled very much by Christian passion. You know? mm -hmm. And those two, so it would probably be an interesting case study of how that could work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's such a vast difference between Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. Yeah. 
Right. Because Billy Graham, you know, had Martin Luther King come. I mean, they yeah. they shared the stage. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and he right. was one of the early evangelists who made sure that it was desegregated mm -hmm. in his revivals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I won't cover that, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> We have to love fundamentalists. What's that? We have to love fundamentalists. Jesus would never say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Jesus never> said. <laughs> I appreciate your talk. I, I think it's really difficult, like you said. One, I mean, you really pushed us. If we were apathetic, you pushed us into action. And if we're hyper-cause oriented, it caused us to, to check ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a good, it was a good counteractive message that's on the razor's edge of what Jesus is doing. But I find it so confounding to know how to go forward sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and the cultural issues come so fast. Yeah. Constantly know. shifting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Totally. And I know that we, you know, we, we're in a position where we're a public ministry in some ways. People come into our home, but it's, people come to our home. If you want to hear what we have to say, okay. Right. But it's not like we're on the streets or, you know, carrying signs mm -hmm. and, and there's our times for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think how to do that well is, takes a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Does so. any, has anyone seen ways that they think it's being done really well? <laughs> mm. I'd love to hear some good stories. Cody? Um, you know what? One way, like, I mean, ways. There's, like, I, maybe one, uh, you know, I don't know the end-all, be-all, but one great example, I read this book called uh, Folks This Ain't Normal by Joel Salatin. Mm -hmm. Anybody heard of him? Mm -hmm. Well, he, he's a farmer, and he's a great, great farmer. And anyway, he's a Christian, and anyway, it, reading that book was amazing. He talks about, like, farming in a way that is, is like, he's... Um, revivifying like mm. farming in a way that it's completely you're still killing animals and stuff but just all these there's there's got to be a uh, all these christianese kingdom oriented way for a lot of our processes you know and the, anyway the book was a great example of how to do that with the food we consume it was from like a christian perspective so anyway that's that was a cool one it's great. a russia yeah uh, russia yeah. They're, they're probably a good example Right. I, I'm doing good things. Uh, yeah, I think very positive. Right, an uh, organization that does farming, environmental, and environmental yeah. care. Um, yeah, yeah. We have a yeah. good friend who's just finished an internship yeah. there, and um, yeah, education, both theological. And there are more. There are a lot more than we get credit for. Yeah, uh, I think sometimes that. Not that we're out for credit, but um, <laughs> we do beat ourselves up a lot, and I think we beat ourselves up a lot based on what we hear in the secular media. Mm -hmm. Which isn't going to give us much of a balanced. Well, I mean, I would say, well, Christians care about, you know, but they don't care about adopting all that. Well, I'm not so sure about that. There's tons of Christian adoption agencies and tons of Christians who have been very active in, try, in trying to provide those alternatives. So I don't think, sometimes we take these criticisms on that I don't necessarily know are fair, <laughs> you know. That's true. Uh, but anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, in Vancouver, I was amazed. I, I heard a lot more intolerance from people who weren't Christians yeah. toward care for the poor mm. and the prostitute and the drug addicted. Mm. Uh, down, downtown Eastside, where uh, all of those are 
characteristics um, uh, in Vancouver, ministries are just covering that area mm -hmm. to care for that. I mean, the police force use containment theory to push all the problems into one area mm. and allow, uh, let it to be a, let it be a cesspool, cesspool. And I know that some people have this idea: it's like, well, let them devour each other mm. and leave mm. us alone. Mm. And the Christians, you know, I remember this one guy excoriating Julia for caring for these people mm. um, as a, a registered nurse down there. Mm. And there's, he's just like, let them to their own ends. Wow. You know, uh, you're only allowing this to stay alive. Mm. Uh, and wow. So I think that, and then secondly, there was uh, churches that were feeding a lot of homeless people, uh, um, several, uh, we were a part of one, but there was a lot of churches that were feeding the poor and uh, it was actually the neighborhoods were getting angry that the homeless mm -hmm. would be in their neighborhoods and bringing down our, uh, yeah. the cost of the property. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's, there's a fear of danger and mm -hmm. people sleeping in the alleyways these kind of things, but there actually was never a report of something stolen or something broken, mm -hmm. but it was just the fear of it, even though it had been in their neighborhood for years. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the lead pastors with the mayor said, well, give us the word, the churches will pull out and we'll leave you for the mess. And the mayor <laughs> knew that he would have free free care for the homeless yeah. because the churches weren't asking to be charged. Right. Paid, yeah. They, yeah. It was people who were wanting to benefit mm -hmm. and to help these people. And, uh, and the mayor knew that if the church was pulled back, it was going to be devastating. Yeah. Um, and I could go on and on. There's, there's tons of tons of active refugees, with planting gardens in downtown. I mean, churches are doing a lot. Christians are doing a lot. I think the church, I'm sure I don't know this for a fact, but I, I would bet that the, the Syrian refugee crisis was, the church played a very mm -hmm. critical role. Most of that was through churches that I know of. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember seeing Facebook across the, across the country all yeah. these different churches of yeah. people that I knew. Right. They're all yeah. taking in refugees. Yeah. And then when you see the news reports of the ones that have been brought in government-wise and houses right. and hotels and we're how doing as well. <coughs> we're doing as well, I just thought this is potentially yeah. going to change our church right. across this country yeah. right. the way that they're taking in these. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally. So. Yeah, that hospitality, that's like... Not towards people who are just like us or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's amazing. Um, so. Thanks so much. I love this talk. Um, I really like Liz. Just started getting to know her. That's the main reason I came. But the second reason was I feel like I could use a talk like this um, for like two of these for every one time I like listen to the news or watch <laughs> YouTube or Netflix or anything because I feel like I'm getting the other message about well, you're fine, everybody's doing it, even in church, you know, um, consumerism, capitalism, individualism, those things are like coming loud and and quietly, very too quietly all the time to me. So I, I do value this talk more than others in a way because I just feel like I need to hear it twice for every one time I'd do anything else. Um, and then the, my other thought, which I never really thought about before, but I was part of a real active church, mm -hmm. uh, a social justice oriented mm -hmm. church in Philadelphia before moving here. And so it made, you made me think, how could they have done things better? Um, what Something I appreciate about them is that they just like decided to, to to go and do things out in public that for me as a conflict avoider and a people pleaser was like, um, you know, felt like going through the eye of a needle for me. Um, 
But what the things that they did well, I wish I should probably tell them this since I'm still friends with them, was um, a good example for me was doing a peaceful vigil outside the Philadelphia Police Department mm. at like 10 o'clock at night with candles mm. and reading the names of the people mm. that had been shot in Philadelphia mm. that year. Mm. But it was at night, so nobody was there. Um, so it was like a way to practice, kind of, because my heart was beating as it is now. Um, and we're singing like hymns and we're holding candles. So it's like very moving. Like, you know, I teared up as easily as I did in my like charismatic church days with like, Jesus, you're the only one I see songs, which now I look back with some criticism at. But that setting also produces some sentimentality and like some emotionalism that you just, you don't totally understand your motives and the motives of the group. But doing it kind of quietly as a way to practice, they didn't do it as practice, but for me it was practice, was helpful. And now looking back, um, I'm thinking a good way to engage like that would be to have a space, you're supposed to be super confident and know what you mean in those settings. So if you go and like protest in Victoria, you're like marching the sign, you're like, yeah, whatever they're saying. <laughs> you don't, you forget that like you can reflect on it and say yeah, like, yeah. my motives are just totally mixed. Right. Can we talk about right. that and admit that? So that's helpful. The, the other way they did things well sometimes, um, a lot of stuff was like power against everyone, <laughs> things that were really uncomfortable for me. But then some things were um, playful things. Like they would just randomly like set up a one of those things that you see on the computer where like in the train everyone starts singing a song and then like three people yeah. do. A flash mob. Yeah, yeah. flash mob stuff, <laughs> but like with busking where like two violinists would be at the other end of the, and the, but we'd all be there. So there was like fun involved sometimes too in these real indirect ways or you know, the, all these horrible things were happening in our neighborhood, um, violence and drugs and stuff, and so they'd do like, today's free haircut day, and if you know how to do haircuts at all, <laughs> anybody in the neighborhood's allowed to come and get your haircut for free, or they did picture days where a photographer will take pictures and will um, give you hard copies of them all. Mm -hmm. So just ways to be four that were pretty playful, um, that are really great compliment to some of the like, um, protesting in front of a gun shop kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. this is very helpful. And I think people are really looking for those ways themselves and don't always know how to find it. Like I remember when I was in university, <laughs> me and my roommate would like make a stand up in front of our house that was like free cookies, just like for no particular reason. <laughs> and people would drive by. And I remember like this one day we did this and all these people kept coming giving us stuff. This guy like gave us these rings and I don't know where I got them from, maybe he stole them. <laughs> um, a girl wanted to give us a stuffed animal, like people were so, and someone was like, next time I'm going to bring pierogies. <laughs> and it's like, and I got to know my neighbors through that way, like it was just, I only did it really a few times, but um, it was like people were just like wanting that, like just those little moments of connection and it wasn't like I didn't give anyone a tract, like it was just, a, and I think we need that sometimes too, it doesn't always have to have like yeah. the mess like and right. then here's the message you know like it can just be like hey we're just enjoying getting to know you and just like the guy with being invited to the shabbat dinner too right like even if he didn't change recant all his political views like they're still going to be with him um and it's pretty amazing yeah i like the idea of practice as well i know that when i worked a lot with teenagers being very purposeful and, and having one of our youth nights every month to be some kind of service. And one of the great ones we did was go to the local fire hall. One of our youth leaders was actually a fireman. And 
we wash their trucks for them. I don't know if you know firemen do their own fire truck washing. They do a pretty good job, but they didn't mind us coming down there, these junior high kids, and washing their trucks for them. And, and then we'd hang out and do a little devotional on our own, but spend some time praying and have them come in when we prayed for them. I tell you, those firemen were pretty taken aback in some ways by these junior highs that were willing to pray for them from their neighborhood that cared about these, these uh, firemen. So it was, it was just a very sort of very purposeful, but totally <coughs> doable for junior high kids. This yeah. is not a difficult thing. They can mm. have some fun with it. So I just think that's really important too. Great. Well, I'm sure that we could keep talking for a long time, but it's after nine o'clock, so mm -hmm. I want to let you go if you need to go, want to go, but I'm happy to stay and chat with anyone who wants to. So thank you all again for coming. Thank you, thank you very much.